I probably, I think I'm going to safely speak for Tom as well. Both of us are super into the goat talk. Yeah, I could use like 500% more of that, to be honest. <laughs> goat Fair lawnmower dogs. racing. What was the lawnmower racing? <gasps> no, that was a different topic, but yeah, there was the lawnmower racing. Wait, would that mean like which goat can finish mowing the lawn first? I think or so, Or are they yeah. racing across the lawn? Okay. Or are they on lawnmowers and racing? <laughs> that, that one. <laughs> it seems the least safe. I care about the goats. I want they're, they're Mitzi and Bootsy to be safe. <laughs> we'll put little crash helmets on them. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Stephanie Carey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? Hey, Chris. It's been a good week. I am back on a previous project that I was working on before RSpec. So I've kind of been pivoting between the RSpec training and then also working on this other project in between. So I am back on the other project. This is the project that we talked a little bit about in regards where we are migrating away from a more complex deployment and hosting process and trying to simplify that process by shifting over to using Heroku. And then we also talked about using Netlify, which was a suggestion that you had. And just to circle back Back on that, we ended up going with Netlify for the static site. Hooray, or hooray for simplicity. And I'm a big fan of Netlify, but more hooray for the simplicity that that presumably brought to the project. It did. Yeah, Netlify is awesome. I'm really enjoying working with it. It made things very easy. So there was some more customization that I had to do when trying to deploy the Jekyll site with Heroku in terms of how much Heroku will try to do on your behalf based on the location of files. And there's some nesting within this project. So it wasn't really straightforward in terms of deploying with Heroku, but Netlify makes it easier to customize some of that configuration. And they also had out-of-the-box support for Git LFS, which is the large file storage. So there are a number of large media files in this repo, but we don't actually want to store that inside of the repo and then also have to track those changes. And I was just blown away because with Heroku, that's something that I needed to configure and add additional support for. But with Netlify, I deployed it and it just worked. And I'm totally just taking that free win. That's awesome. I've only heard of Git LFS. I've never actually had to use it, but it's great that that's just built into Netlify and one of the many enjoyable things about it. There's a bunch of plugins to Netlify as well that I've been looking at. Like they'll automatically do gzip conversion and things like that. They have like an accessibility audit and a bunch of things that seem like really interesting ways to like lean even more on Netlify as a platform. But um, yeah, glad that that's uh, working out for you. Yeah, it's been really nice. How's your week going? It's going well. It's, uh, I don't know, vaguely normal week, I would say. I did run into one interesting thing that I thought I would share. Working with Inertia on the app that I'm working on, uh, I've been talking about Inertia for the past many weeks. I continue to really enjoy it as a project. But I found a really weird edge case. It was reported to me by the support team of the organization that I'm working with. And they said occasionally when someone goes to sign out, they get a like 404 in a modal which is a really weird thing. So the modal thing happens whenever inertia gets an unexpected response. And so someone's going to sign out, which is a delete to the session's path and all that normal stuff. And for some reason, we're ending up on a 404 page. And so inertia sees that and is like, something went wrong. I'm going to show this to the user in a modal. But that's that. This is an error page. I'm not going to try and do anything else. But what ended up happening is I tried to chase this down and I was only able to reproduce it on production. So, you know, one of those fantastic types of bugs. 
But eventually I was able to single it out. So I had to look in the network traffic and figure out like, what is going on here? This definitely works. Like I can sign out of the app. I know I can. But what is happening is when you sign out, that is making an XHR to a delete request specifically to the sessions endpoint or the session endpoint. I think it's a singular resource in Rails. And with that, the response code needs to be a 303, which is a status code that I didn't know about. Uh, So a 303 is equivalent to a 302, so saying a redirect basically, but with a 303, there's the added semantics that the next request to the, the new location must be made with a get. Whereas if you just say 302 to a delete or a patch or a put, then it's going to do the next request with the delete patch or put. So it's basically saying like, oh, no, you didn't want to delete here, delete over there. But that's not what we want to do. We want to say, cool, you are signed out now. Go to the root page or whatever it is. But the unfortunate thing is for some reason, occasionally that 303 is not properly being set. So that 303 happens as part of the inertia rails stack. So it knows how to do this and they're properly handling it. It's part of the HTTP standard. Everything is great except sometimes it doesn't work. And I don't think it's inertia Rails's fault. Like I'm looking at their code and I can't see any weird places for that to go awry, but I think something in my middleware stack occasionally is overriding the response and saying its own, oh, we're going to augment this redirect. But it happens intermittently. I cannot reproduce it regularly. I can only reproduce it on production. But it was interesting. I opened an issue on the inertia repository, like the core inertia repository. And they, in a very friendly way, pointed me to documentation that they have about the difference between a 302 and a 303 and how they handle it as a project and the fact that it's built on standards. And it was a very gentle, like, oh, problem might be on your machine, friend. And I closed the issue and said, thank you for so kindly teaching me about the internet and pointing me in the right direction. But unfortunately, it remains unsolved at this point. Somebody in my middleware stack is messing with me. Oh, interesting. That story took a pivot. I wasn't expecting them for to <laughs> say that it's actually on your machine. Because mm-hmm. yeah, now you're just back in the unknown space of how are you going to troubleshoot from here? It's happening very rarely. So I'm waiting until I hear more or until I can... At this point, I haven't reprioritized it. I threw a bunch of time at it, couldn't figure it out. But this isn't, as far as I understand it, this is not an inertia thing. It has to do with making requests over XHR. So it is specific to that mode of interaction, but it's not like inertia is doing this. Uh, Actually, they are doing the correct thing. But somebody somewhere is not. And I listed out the middleware and I'm just like staring at it. And inertia is very low. It's like right next to the, the routes, which is the innermost piece of the middleware stack. And I'm just staring at that and I'm like, could be any. I just, what do I just go read the... And especially because it only happens on production, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) I think just stare at that list of middleware for a while until something (laughs) shines a light in my head. But uh, thus far, no, I do not have an answer. Oh, no, you've got like a flaky test, but it's on production (laughs) kind of mode. (laughs) The nice thing is the failure mode is just that a user sees that error modal. But if they reload, if they navigate, if they do anything else, they are logged out. So the logout works. It's just the redirect that is having a little bit of inconsistency. So it's definitely not ideal. I'm not happy about it. But at least I learned something about the internet in the process. That's true. That's a positive spin. Yeah, it is nice that at least it's just more of an inconvenience versus actually preventing Mm -hmm. people from getting work done on the app. So that's something. <laughs> yeah, if the failure mode were occasionally you can't sign out of the app, then I would be much more concerned. Now yeah. it's just like uh, occasionally it's like a little rough around the edges. 
but I'll continue looking. And if I ever figure it out, then I'll certainly tell you. But mostly the 302 versus 303 was a fun thing to learn about. And uh, yeah, uh, it doesn't happen in the case of post, just as an aside, which is why it typically doesn't come up. Like a 302 is fine. The semantics of a 302 for a post request, it knows to do the subsequent one with a get because that's just the thing. But the 303 exists for the other ones. Delete, patch, put, etc. So there we go. The internet's weird. <laughs> but yeah, that was that's uh, I don't know the high point of my week. It was a, it was a fine week. Uh, it was interesting. That was the interesting point of my week. But yeah, what else is up with you? It's moments like these that I wish we had more like developer diaries. So then you go back and it's just like the week of three o two. It's like so then future you is like what the hell is that? <laughs> it was a weird week. Well, on a similar note, I also learned something this week. So Ebes, a ThoughtBotter, published a really helpful post where he had discovered something new and then was sharing it with the team. And he was specifically highlighting that there is a Rails method that is called scoping. And it's a method that I haven't used before, uh, but it's kind of neat in terms of if you're working with an active record relationship, you can use the or method that allows you to create a query that matches on one of multiple conditions. So for an example, you could have like post where author is first author or post where author is another author. So it's a really nice method, but there is one gotcha where the two relations must be structurally compatible. And most commonly, that means that the base relation must have the same joins clause. So then it feels a bit repetitive. So you have this post.joins, and then it could be for your author and then your where clause. And then when you write your next one, so you have your .or, and then you have to repeat that. So you have your post.joins author and then your where clause for that as well. And there's a really nice blog post that Eves is publishing, so that will help as I'm actually trying to walk through the exact code here. But with the scoping method, it allows you to reduce some of that redundancy because it's going to scope all queries within a block. So then you could write post.joins authors and then use that scoping method and then pass it a block. So do, and then you can add post.where authors and have your where clause or post.where. So it's a bit friendlier to read because you're essentially taking that duplication of the post.joins authors and bringing it up to the top, calling scoping on it, and then passing in your post.where and then your .or post.where, and you don't have to repeat the joins. So it's a nice function that helps with readability in terms that you are reducing some of the repetitive setup to make sure that those queries are structurally compatible. And then you get to focus on what's the difference and then what is the the heart of the query that you're looking for. So it's really neat. And I really appreciated Eve sharing that. Once there's a blog post about it, I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes, which will hopefully be out by this episode. But if not, I'll be sure to share it on Twitter, all the places. Yeah, I'll be honest, I, I tried to pull it up while you were talking about it to get a, a better visual of the code, and it is not live yet. So I felt boondoggled there. But uh, hopefully by the time anyone listening is actually hearing this, it will actually be live. Uh, I am super excited to hear about this, though, because whenever I've tried to use OR, it's one of those that I, the API always makes me feel bad about myself, because it like I get it wrong most of the time for this structurally compatible reason, but it also feels so pedantic. I feel like I'm just like, you know, you know what I mean? Come on. Just like, come on. And I can't. I think that's the Peter Griffin argument. Come on. 
<laughs> just come on. <laughs> or has been around for a bit of time, but it wasn't always around. And so when I first started using it, I think I failed the first few times. I was just like, no, never mind. I'm just going to handwrite the sequel. And so I would drop down and do where and then a string of blah or blah. And I would just give up a bunch of times because the error messages were confusing. I was like, what does it mean? Structurally compatible. I don't know what that means. I'm just a person over here trying to write some code. But I'm very excited if there is something available that will simplify this. So I look forward to reading this blog post. I appreciate how much you relate to this because I'm in the same spot where I always get it wrong and I always forget how to write it. And it is a really nice way to extract some of that common structure. So then it improves readability. Hopefully you won't feel bad about yourself anymore then when you're writing this because you'll just know to use scoping. So then you'll always have compatible structures. It'll be great. It'll be grand. I'm excited to share it with you. Or I'm excited for Eeps to share it with you. I'm also excited for that. Uh, whenever I look at Active Record, generally, I'm obviously a big fan of Rails. I think we both are. But when I look at a lot of pieces of Rails, I'm like, oh, that's a really nice, cohesive API. There's a ton of existing code out there, a lot of solved problems, etc. But Active Record, somewhat uniquely of all of the stuff in Rails, I'm just like, that's magic. That shouldn't work. It shouldn't be something that they can maintain and support multiple different databases. And it is just amazing to me how much active record can do and how well and like i'm still learning new pieces of active record basically constantly and refining how i can work with it and getting more composable and all of the like sql is not composable by default but active record is and i've heard people decry orms in the past and i'm like no 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 I love Active Record and I'm a little bit scared of it. It's just like Wiley e. Coyote running off a cliff and only when he looks down does he actually fall. But until then, like I don't I don't want to look inside Active Record and see that <laughs> it's just made out of hopes and dreams or whatever, but I'm continually impressed by it. During the RSpec course, I would often make the joke when we are covering RSpec matchers, all the number of built-in RSpec matchers. Uh, there's a lot of them. They're great. There's some really good documentation. And so I'd make the joke. I'm like, you know, whenever you need some light reading or those moments in between, you know, commercials, watching a show, go ahead and pull up RSpec matchers, just read through it. I feel like Active Record is that perfect spot too, where I'm like, I just kind of want it open all the time and sort of like read through it and learn something new every time I browse the docs. This is how I spend my time. <laughs> we're, we're cool. <laughs> we're super cool. <laughs> well, shifting gears just a little bit, there was something that you actually said uh, at the end of last year. So we were recording the end of year top 10 list sort of thing. And as almost a sort of offhand comment, you mentioned how you were seeking calm and how that was almost like a theme for you. And I think some of that was in context of 2020, the year that was a year and a decade and whatever, but it really resonated with me. And it's something that's been sort of rolling around in my head. And the more I think about it, the more I recognize that that's sort of a fundamental theme for me. So seeking calm or a different way to think about it is momentum is really the thing that I'm going for. And so when I think about the highest performing, the most effective, the most productive teams that I've worked with, it wasn't sheer velocity. It wasn't people just hammering on features and shooting things out the door. It was consistency and calm. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you. And then if so, I want to tease it apart a little bit and see if we can find some of the like underlying things that might actually drive towards that. Very much. Anytime I reflect on the various teams that I've worked with, the happiest teams that also, frankly, seem to get the most done too, were the teams that were calm and shipping more consistently versus the teams where we had frantic pushes to meet a deadline or get some big feature out the door. So yes, that very much resonates with me. 
We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. I'm curious, how do you go about defining that momentum? And then what is it that you are measuring to then help you know if the team has a healthy momentum and then also has that sense of calm, but also efficiency? What sort of traits, what are you looking for when you are defining a reasonable, steady, healthy pace? Sure. I think to like give the heuristic version, the like, let's just throw some numbers at this. In my mind, everyone on a team should be producing about a pull request a day somewhere on that order that that's probably a tiny bit high but that's sort of like north star i want to be heading towards that and so there might be some variation in there but i think the counterpoint to that would be oh we have large long-running refactoring branches and so those don't land for a while or we have big features that take you know a week to land or anything like that i think wherever we can take those and break them up and that cadence of Things are being shipped about once a day per person, roughly. I don't know. What do you think of that number, that that space? Yeah, I'm intrigued by it because initially when you said it, I've definitely been in that space where I'm not issuing one PR per day. So I'm immediately like, ooh, is, you know, should I be reconsidering my own velocity? But if I could tweak that just slightly, I really like the idea of asking that more of a question to the team to say, what is preventing everyone from issuing one PR a day? Is it around long running branches? Is it around flaky tests? Is it complexity in the code? And sort of dive into there because then that would help me establish like, is it reasonable that folks aren't issuing one PR a day? Or are there things that we could do to improve to get closer to that North Star? As I think about it, it's probably a little bit high, but you know, it's a nice round number. So it worked as my initial version. Uh, but part of my thinking on it is much like when we're doing TDD and we get the shameless green, which is a phrase that I just learned from you recently, but that idea of let's just get to green with whatever the simplest solution is, it's not going to be the real implementation. With pull requests, we often have actually, like when we start to work on something, we recognize that there's actually more than one thing in a given pull request. And so one of the things that I've taken to doing pretty proactively at this point is if there is a migration that needs to happen, uh, data change, can I get that in in an initial pull request so that that's going to go out separate from the code change? And I can see that get out there. It's stable, especially if there's like data coming in from different sources and this new migration is going to be accepting that data and making sure it fits in the right shape. And we're not going to be having data pipelines or anything like that blow up. If I can just get that out on its own. So there's going to be no user facing change. But now this little piece can go out on its own. That's an easy way to hit this metric. Not that we want to game it, but it's the sort of thing that like actually whenever we break work down into the smallest pieces, that is something that I've seen is really helpful in terms of maintaining that momentum, but also in terms of being successful and not having to revert things as much and having more granular pieces to see go out into production. 
I have a specific follow-up question to that because I love the idea of breaking work up into small shippable chunks. And like you said, not so much to game it, but then that way we just feel that continuous momentum of introducing changes. It's easy to review. It's easy to ship and to continue to add on to it. In regards to where you have feature work, let's say it's split between front end, back end. How do you feel when it comes to splitting up that work? So if you have someone working on the back end changes and front end changes, do you prefer for one person to work through that and then that gets tested together? Or if you're shipping the back end changes, are you comfortable with the fact that maybe someone can't test those changes and you're just relying on unit and integration tests to know that that feature is in a good state? I'm curious how you would split up that work because I often see teams take very different approaches for that type of work. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Definitely something that I've run into with a number of teams and across a lot of projects. My not snarky answer, but my like initial version would be actually that's something that I've been trying to unwind in my own work over time. That split of back end and front end and that these are fundamentally different technologies and code bases, et cetera, and deployable units. I found this is one of those edge cases, one of those pains of working that way. And so actually folding those back in and in particular, because apparently I'm going to say it every week now, using inertia as a technology to bind them together, still give that nice experience. But that I found to work really well, and it allows me to still have capybara type feature specs over things. That's my like non-answer. That's what I would do if I were starting fresh. But if I were in an organization that had a split back end and front end, I think my goal is almost always to get the back end stuff out there first and be able to then, say, test against a staging back end with my local development front end and verify integration that way. But again, there's enough pieces there that I don't love that as an answer. But I think that's what it would be is definitely do it in two pieces. Don't try and like synchronize the deploys. That's not good. But this is a pressure that says now we need to build it in such a way that the back end change can go out without the corresponding front end change. And I think usually that's pretty easy, but occasionally that can be a pressure that will change how you structure the code. Like if we're fundamentally changing the payload of a response, we have to do that in a backwards compatible way. And I think that's a good mode to be in because, again, we don't have to synchronize and all that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. That's helpful. Yeah, I have found, I think I tend to favor the identifying the smallest that's still valuable vertical slice and then shipping that together because that way it can be more easily tested by a product manager or maybe if your team has QA or it's being tested by developers. And I have found that I tend to favor that small vertical slice just because it can be easy to get out of sync in terms of someone's working on the back end. They may not know exactly what the front end needs. Data modeling may be just a bit off. It's kind of the idea of building the bridge from two different sides and hoping that you're going to meet in the middle versus if you have one person that understands the needs of both ends. So then that way you can make sure that it's going to meet in the middle as expected. Or if you do have two people, so if you are splitting it up between back end and front end, but then having those people pair together and work in sync on that feature, then that works really well from just past experience. But whenever you split it up too much and you have a really big change for the back end and a really big change for the front end and then split that up, that's where I have felt pain from that before. Yeah, I think my answer did not speak to that at all. But just to be clear, that is 100% how I want things to be happening. And more my answer was around, well, the back end should be like slightly ahead of the front end in terms of deployment. And so, yeah, work on them together. And then you'll open the two PRs that in theory build off of each other deploy the back end first, make sure that's stable, and then deploy the front end. But 
you're doing that sort of in lockstep. Um, but yeah, the idea of building a bridge from either ends. Are, I feel like there was a time where there was a railroad being built from like two sides of the country. And this might be the Transcontinental Railroad. I'm not sure, but they were like the wrong size. And when they met, the railroad did not work because there were different grades of track or something. I don't know railroad history, but something like that. And that's sort of like, oh, no, we were fundamentally off. Uh, software is easier to fix typically, but just that that sort of like, whoops, we were way off. <laughs> I like how you said, I don't know railroad history, but that anecdote is definitely going to stick in my mind now. <laughs> and I'll be like, well, this <laughs> once upon a time, this happened. It's true enough. There was that time that the Mars lander just crashed into it because we were using metric and imperial at the same time. Like these sort of anecdotes tell truths. That one's definitely true. I don't know the railroad one. <laughs> but yeah, shifting around a little bit, a similar idea, or I think a related idea is teams that I've seen working in this mode where they're small pieces are being delivered very regularly. One of the things that stands out about that is that they will often prioritize code review. And that is something that I've seen differ a lot between different teams. Some teams I've seen uh, PR can sit up there for a day or two and get no feedback, whereas other teams, it's a number of hours at most before code gets reviewed. And there's a particular piece from Derek Pryor, former host of this here Bike Shed, his wonderful talk on building a culture of code review, where he talks about prioritizing code review and saying that's the work that is closest to being done. And so we as a team should sort of collectively rally around it. And I love that framing of it. It's not that their work is better than yours. It's we as a team all collectively own this code. And that's the stuff that's just about ready to go out the door. So let's all focus on that. Uh, and ideally, again, these are small things. So code review shouldn't take that long, et cetera, et cetera. All of these pieces sort of build on each other. But that one of prioritizing code review, I think, is one of the more polarizing ones that I've seen because I've seen people be like, no, I, I want to be heads down in the flow and not distracted for even like two days at a time. And I'm like, I'm going to have to disagree on that one. But interesting. what do you think about prioritizing code review? I also really like that framing of the idea of like the team is rallying around something that is near completion and we as a team are working to consistently ship work. So if that is the work that is closest towards being shipped, or if this is the work that then is also at risk because there are questions and that person's blocked, then that does feel like the right thing to prioritize. So yes, I love that idea. I am also someone admittedly that I myself would label myself as someone that's a bit slow when it comes to PR review because I do tend to be thorough as I'm going through it. That's why I'm someone that I greatly value when someone can give me a heads up. Like, do you want my 90% feedback or do you want my 30%? Where are we in this? And so knowing that is something that takes me a bit more time, then I do empathize with people that I have heard say on teams where they're like, well, if I focus on code review, then I'm going to spend my whole day reviewing code and I won't actually get to work on my PRs. Because if you have a really large team, maybe you have 10 PRs that are up there. So I do think there's a balance in terms of you may not be able to get to all the PRs, but perhaps you start your day with PR review to then unblock others. And then you also schedule some time like right before, right after lunch to also unblock others. And then maybe right before the end of the day, but still have some time in there for your own heads down time to keep working on your work as well. All of that resonates and feels true. And there's an interesting thing here where I've heard an adage or an idea around something isn't a meaningful value unless someone could reasonably hold the opposing view. And so the idea, the value of prioritizing code review, it's not free. It comes at a cost and it comes at that cost of 
we're trading off a little bit of heads down time and responsiveness and our own ability to do the work. But we can choose to do that, or we can say that we value that, or we can say that we value the heads down time and code review is going to take a little bit longer. I think my argument is towards prioritizing code review because I've seen it be one of the things that's associated with this momentum and continually getting things out the door and not having work in process, you know, stack up or anything like that. But I think it critically goes hand in hand with a team that has shared knowledge, a team that has shared practices and beliefs like we're not going through and ideally not saying like stylistic things because hopefully we have an auto formatter or something like that that's taking care of it so hopefully code review can be focused on small prs that are understandable in a relatively quick pass and if we end up with something that does need 45 minutes an hour to review that's probably something that we should actually take offline and pair on or something like that because in my mind, the counterpoint to prioritizing code review is having code that is easily reviewable, having code that I can come in and quickly scan through and say, like, uh, here's a couple of suggestions, but overall, this looks good. Send it out the door. It's definitely a double, not a double edged sword. It's two sides of the same coin. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> that's the analogy I want. Yes, I really like the adage that you just shared. And I think that's what I was trying to express in the terms that prioritize code review, but then also recognize that there is a cost. And then it's really great for people to then facilitate easy code review by having small PRs for folks to review. There is something that I do feel strongly about that I'm curious how you feel as well in regards to when you have a team, how many big features should that team be split up working on? So at a previous company that I worked with, we took an approach that I really liked where we could only have like two big distinct features per sprint. And then we'd have some other smaller tickets that were pulled in as well. But we would highlight the features that we knew were more complex, required more context and conversations. And we wouldn't go above two of those because then it was very hard for the team to context switch, to review PRs, to talk about it, to answer questions. And then it felt like it slowed us down drastically. It almost felt like an anti-strategy in terms of maintaining momentum, and it felt like it was, in fact, hindering our momentum. That's not something that I've specifically thought about, but as you say it, it totally makes sense. And I think it's something that I've naturally strived towards without specifically naming it in that way. In my mind, I might frame that or I might have thought about that in the context of we want to make sure there's knowledge sharing and no silos and things like that. But if you have seven different things going on at the same time, then it's incredibly hard to have everyone fully caught up on all of these new features that are simultaneously happening. I think the other side of it, though, is as your team gets larger, it becomes really difficult to maintain that. And so when and how do you split a team and say, like, these five people are working on this stuff and these five people are that and then suddenly we're having different stand-ups and we're in different groups and working on different parts of the code base like when and how you do that is actually an entirely other subtle art but at a minimum i like that framing and that framing should hold true like the framing that you gave of at most two big features simultaneously and so using that as almost a heuristic of are we growing too big like is that feeling like a constraint that we don't want anymore maybe our team is too large and we need to think about shaping things around or changing something but i really like it as again like to give very loose numbers one pr per person per day two big features <laughs> per team i'm probably going to walk back the one pr per person per day but it's you know these are aspirational goals i think this feels like we're creating like the 12 days of Christmas. We've got one PR per person and then two big features per team. We're just recreating the 12 days of Christmas, but the 12 steps of momentum, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with my next one then. Three deploys per day <laughs> to pick a number and a thing. Um, but to be serious about that, I think deployment and getting code out to production, having that be as frictionless as possible, 
having that be as close to continuous deployment as possible. I've never actually done true continuous deployment, and it's something I've been reading up more on lately and becoming increasingly intrigued by. Charity Majors is someone who speaks online about this sort of stuff often. She's the CEO of Honeycomb, but she talks a lot about how continuous deployment and having short test pipelines and things like that is critical to high-functioning teams, and it's sort of wormed its way into my head because I've always pushed to get closer to that. Every team that I've worked on, I've made some effort to simplify and speed up the time between, yep, this is approved, to when it is actually out in production. But yeah, her, her thoughts have really been sort of capturing my interest of late. But I think that idea of how close can you get to that? The opposite being, oh, well, we have a two-week QA cycle and it needs to go out to staging before you can merge it, et cetera, et cetera. All of those are complexities that add on that sometimes are necessary. Sometimes there are constraints within the organization that require that. But I would always look at those very cautiously because I think they're going to really slow down the momentum. Yeah, I think the favorite part that I'm really enjoying about this discussion is we're throwing out like these numbers, but it's really, like you said, that North Star that then we use to then help prod to explore like, well, could we get here? And what's preventing us from getting here versus the, you know, we have to achieve this goal for us to have consistent momentum. Indeed. So to actually, I'll throw one last number out there. Zero. Zero errors. And that one's completely unrealistic. But if you want to get closer to continuous deployment, you need to trust that if you see an error, it means something. And often you and I have talked about having error systems that are just completely full up of things that we're like kind of not sure if they're important or not. We stop paying attention to the error tracking system and we don't necessarily trust it. But in order to be able to do what's closer to continuous deployment, we need to have trust in that error tracking system. So zero errors. That's that North Star, at least. Have you achieved that with some of your applications where you have zero errors or are there some that you feel like just are always going to hang out? I've never seen true zero. That's not a realistic thing. If nothing else, like the most recent example, I'm working on a JavaScript app and I get errors that come into the error tracker that are related to Chrome or Safari or Firefox extensions that are just misbehaving. And our error tracking software thus far doesn't know how to differentiate that and be like, that's their fault. They did that. (laughs) Which, I mean, it also like sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Very complicated. Error tracking is very hard. So I've never been at zero. But I think similar to like inbox zero, you're always going to get new emails in your inbox. But how quickly can you deal with them, triage it, understand what an email means and respond to it? That's sort of aspirationally where I want to be. Oh, I like that comparison. Yeah, because you're constantly going to get new stuff in. But then how quickly can you recognize how meaningful it is? And then how quickly can you categorize them? I love it. All right. So circling back to when I asked you, I'm like, Chris, how do we measure momentum? We have some stats now. We have zero errors, which is akin to that inbox zero mode, one PR per person per day, two complex features per sprint, and three deploys per day. And important legalese asterisks down at the bottom. These are completely made up numbers, but sort of, you know, aspirational goals. So yeah. (laughs) I think you have to say that in a really fast, quiet voice for it to sound like exact legalese. Maybe Tom can speed it up and post. (laughs) (laughs) These numbers are entirely made up and devoid of any attachment to reality, but they're, you know, good things to try out. (laughs) Perfect. And then some of the ways that can help us achieve those, I think what you said are like super important, can't deviate from those numbers. Some of those strategies would be breaking things or works into small features or PRs, prioritizing code review, and then rallying around code that is closest to being shipped or blocked, refactoring as we go. So avoiding those big refactor or long running branches, and then also knowledge sharing. That sounds like a good list. I really like it. Yeah, it's fun. Folks should try it out. Let us know. How do those numbers stack up in reality? 
Or are they completely untethered from reality, like most of what I say? I'd also be curious to hear how other people are measuring momentum with their team. So I know we've touched on a couple of topics that resonate deeply with us. I'd really love to know what resonates with others and what helps them as they're seeking calm and momentum with their team. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review on iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svacary on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.